0: So the most meaningful aspect of our styles, which is what we choose to write about, is
1: utterly unlimited. Hi, I'm Brilliant, your host for this show. I know that I'm incredibly blessed. As the son of self-made billionaires, I've seen the high price some people pay for success, and I've learned that money really can't buy happiness. But I've also had the good fortune to learn directly from many of the world's leading teachers. If you're ready to be, do, have, and give more, this podcast is for you. If you are interested to produce writing that people enjoy reading and that makes a difference in their lives, do yourself a favor and pick up a book written by my guest today. The book is called Pity the Reader on Writing with Style. It's written by Suzanne McConnell and Kurt Vonnegut. Suzanne was a student and a friend of Kurt Vonnegut's and she was asked to write this book by Kurt's Trust. Now, if you don't know who Kurt Vonnegut is, you might've forgotten your high school English classes, but Kurt is author of Slaughterhouse-Five and a number of other works of primarily fiction, but also nonfiction. Someone who had an extraordinary life, serving in the military, being taken prisoner of war, surviving the bombing of Dresden, and having so many other life experiences that we all, almost all of us deal with, but we don't necessarily write about or share about, that he put in his writing in ways that were sometimes humorous, sometimes touching, but almost always entertaining. In this interview, uh, I asked Suzanne to expound on what she includes in this book, what Kurt Vonnegut's instructions and advice about writing were. So we talk about how to earn a living as a creative, those financial considerations as a writer, we talk about love, we talk about finding a community or, or building one. We talk about how Kurt dealt with depression, as so many creatives do, how he thought about love. We also talk about the realities of being a writer. I will say this, for a taste of Kurt Vonnegut's uh, instruction, you might Google how to write with style. It was an article that he wrote many years ago. It's reproduced in the physical copies of this book. Uh, I don't think it's in the Kindle version, But um, some really great advice just in about a four or five minute read right there. Susan has taught both writing and literature at Hunter College. She's also written for the Huffington Post and many other publications, including poets and writers. She has been the fiction editor at the Bellevue Literary Review since 2006, so she knows a thing or two about what she's talking about. You can learn more about her at suzannemcconnell.com. And I think you can find her on Facebook, but I just want to say as well that in this interview, we also talk about Suzanne's forthcoming novel. So congratulations on that, Suzanne, after many, many years of working on that, that you're finally ready to release it into the world. So with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation with my new friend, Suzanne McConnell. Suzanne, welcome to the School for Good Living.
0: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
1: Will you tell me, please, what is life about?
0: Well, as a student of Kurt Vonnegut's, I can tell you what he might say. Um, it's about farting around, he says in one chapter that I have. Um, I, I mean, there's so many ways that one could put a little tweak on that question because you could say, "What is the meaning of life?" or "What is." What is meaningful to do in life, but you know if you look at birds or any other creature, they're not asking what it's life about they're just living and i think I think that's the answer, and I think it's a very hard thing for human beings to um, swallow because we want it to be about something or to make meaning of it in some way and um I noticed one year because I go to Cape Cod every summer, my husband and I go to Cape Cod every summer and we're on a pond and we're by the ocean and we're out of the city. And I notice that I never asked that kind of question when I'm there. I just swim and walk and write. And I never asked that kind of question. Wow.
1: With Kurt's answer this about farting around, <laughs> what do you mean by that? And do you agree with him?
0: Well, you know it's funny coming from him because he made so much meaning and was striving so hard to make meaning out of what happened to him. but I think what he means is kind of what I said, like enjoy yourself you there's no he certainly would say there's no answer to that, you know he would not because a, a lot of a lot of what happens of the absurdity in his books has to do with um you know the fact there isn't any. On the other hand, his, his character, his alter ego character, Trout, um, writes, what is the, what is the purpose of life? And, um, but it's for, it's about writing. It's about writers. And the answer is to be the conscient, the conscious it's a longer, I can't, don't have the quote exactly in my mind, but it's something about like being the, the conscience of the universe. So that's a completely kind of different question, you know. But that's to writers. So
1: that in that passage that you share in, in your book, um, "Pity the Reader," I believe yeah. it was something like, "To be the eyes and the ears and the conscience right. of the creator of the universe, you yes. fool."
0: Yes, that's exactly right. You got it right.
1: But he didn't have a pen or a pencil on him to scribble that in right. response to the person who had written it in right. a bathroom. Somewhere. Exactly.
0: But if he did, this is what he would have written. So you must have, you must have marked that page.
1: I did, I did <laughs> actually host a, a monthly meditation group. And I shared that with the group yesterday, just inviting okay. them to consider maybe that. So, you know, or maybe that's an opportunity that's available to you, but I love that. And I might be a little ahead of myself. Um, let me ask this question. Before I ask you about yourself, but for those who might not remember back to their high school required reading or those who aren't broad readers, who might not actually know Kurt Vonnegut, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: will you tell us who is he?
0: Um, Kurt Vonnegut is an American writer um, who was born and grew up in Indianapolis, and um, he's a humorist. He's often considered a black humorist. And his most famous work is Slaughterhouse-Five, and that's the one that is most often, I think, assigned right now. Um, And um, it is based on his experiences as an American prisoner of war at the age of 21 to something like that. When he was captured after being in the Battle of the Bulge, after a month being in the war, captured and taken to a um, as a prisoner of war to Dresden, Germany. And then a couple of months later, three or four months later, um, the the allies, that means we, the Americans and the English firebombed Dresden to smithereens, and he was saved by his uh, guards who took all the prisoners of war down three flights into the um, very, very bottom hold of a slaughterhouse. And when they came out three days later, um, the entire city was um, pretty much Ash. And then, um, so his, I mean, this is the experience. In thinking about it a lot, I've thought a lot about not just that, but the aftermath of it, which he doesn't talk about much, but in some of his nonfiction he does. But anyway, that experience was the struggle he was having to write about it uh, is part of how my book is structured and part of what he accomplished before he got to Slaughterhouse-Five. He wrote five books before it, but um, it, it was what was thrusting him forward as a writer, trying to trying to struggle with that. I mean, there's a lot of other aspects, which I'm sure will come out as we talk, but um,
1: yeah. Yeah. And um, Kurt passed in 2007. Is that mm-hmm. right? So yes. he's been gone about a decade and a half, but of course his writing lives on. And you- knew him personally. In fact, you were his student and uh as I understand you were his his friend. Will you talk about how did you how did you get connected with Kurt and what was the nature of your relationship?
0: Um well, I was connected with him because I was his student at at University of Iowa Writers Workshop and um but w- one of the, one of the things about the workshop or probably any any uh group of people where you're there for a while, because it's a two-year program, um, is that you eventually gravitate towards those with whom you have an affinity. And so people, that you know, we had very different teachers. There was a um, the the guy who was Kurt's best friend there was a very different person than him. He was a Chilean writer, Jose Donoso, who was an aristocrat and um, wrote very... Um, Beautiful prose I mean a completely different kind of writer, uh, so uh, you know people who who were drawn to that were drawn to to Jose et etc, et etc. I was drawn to Kurt because well first of all, the first time moment I saw him, I thought he was very funny, and um he, he had this stance that was hilarious um And I've said this before, but it still it still resonates even with me. He was smoking a cigarette in a cigarette holder. And he and he looked so he looked so funny. The smoke's curling up and, you know, he's this tall guy kind of bent. And of course, he was young then he's he's not the Kurt that you see in pictures. I mean, he was only 42. So, uh, you know, um, I was 22 so that was that was the first thing, but he wasn't my first teacher i I didn't know who he was um, but he team taught a class, and in that team teaching class, which is the one where I saw him with a cigarette holder, um, I, I found out what he was like, you know, and also, you know, students talk to each other, we didn't have the um rape your professor thing, but You know, you you talk about each other. And so everyone learned the background of our teachers and what they were struggling with. So we knew what he was trying to write. He was trying to write Slaughterhouse Five. And the fact that he was struggling so hard, that he had a big family, um, that he had given up everything to write, uh, taken such risks to write. Um, But the but trying to write about something really traumatic i I was uh, sort of gone through traumas just before that and so I was very drawn to that mm. and he was a great teacher he was he was he did his best teaching there he said he was hungry to be there he'd been a- alone on Cape Cod for years um, he was really happy to be there and he he really uh put effort into it in a way that other teachers didn't
1: what a, what a privilege to learn directly from one of America's great literary luminaries and not only to have been his student and to associate with him that way, but to have written a book on his writing advice and his instruction, right? So you've written pity the reader on writing with style, which I understand that Kurt's trust asked if you would do, mm-hmm. Will you talk about what is this book and how did it come to be?
0: Okay. Um, well, I think if uh if one of my publishers is correct, that Dan Wakefield, who uh was first going to write this book, also had suggested the idea to the Vonnegut Trust. But um he had he had just finished putting together Kurt's letters and and he he organized them and wrote little introductions to them so people would know what they were and he was exhausted from doing that and he's you know older than i am and that's old enough so he he was exhausted he didn't want to do it and i think he suddenly saw it was going to be a lot more work than he was willing to do i think they had they had a fairly small book in mind when they asked me to do it you know they they wanted me to i think I can't remember the first deadline was supposed to be like six months, something absolutely ridiculous, you know, I, that I knew would never get accomplished. Um, not if I was doing it anyway. So anyway, Dan called me up. Um, and he had also, I think he felt, he'd also gotten to know me because he'd interviewed me for the the letters book. I first met him actually at, at Kurt's funeral. Um, and um, he had, he uh, had, he had not published any of my letters and I was a little bit pissed off at that. And, um, and I let him know that when the book came, because I was, I was kind of hurt. So um, anyway, he called me up and said, I have an opportunity for you. And you know, when somebody says that, "Ah, what are they trying, you know, (laughs) what are they trying to get out of and what are they offering you, you know? So, but for me, it was, it was like I, I really felt touched by the universe. I mean, I even feel shivers right now telling you this because it was the perfect moment for me to be doing that book. I had just proposed a um, panel discussion for um, the Associated Writing Programs on, uh, on Vonnegut. And it was called, um, oh, my God, what was it called? Um Something about the the debacles. Oh, I can't remember it. It's a great title too, um, "Debacles of War and Other Disasters" or something like that. I had been teaching in a um, literature and medicine program at hospitals, and I was teaching a lot of war literature because I was I was I was not teaching. I was leading seminars that were more like discussions, and I got to choose the literature. So I was so it was too for caregivers. It wasn't for patients. It was for caregivers who are, you know, they get partly traumatized themselves. Sometimes they need a lot of support Mm. and it was for them to air out things. So I was really in the thick of, of reading a lot of war literature for two or three years, including his. And um, so I, so I created that panel. It had just gotten accepted. I had, revised my novel for the umpteenth time and it was ready to market and i absolutely could not do it i thought i would i thought my heart would break if i put it out in the universe and it got rejected i just i just couldn't do it and i had started to write a story so when i realized that i thought okay what is it i really have to say what what haven't i written that i really and there was a there was a story i really wanted to tell and I started writing that story. And um, so so Dan asked me uh, just at that moment, I'd put aside the novel, I'd started writing the story, and I knew the story was going to be good. I had the voice and it was going. And I I did not start my homework for Pity the Reader until I finished that story, because that was that was not going to work to put it on pause, you know. And that story won a won a first prize. Wow. So I was there was something magical and I I I can't tell you what about stopping the novel. Uh, it, it's like listening to the the whatever telling me, don't go there, do this, and here's this. And you know, I immersed myself for a year in everything Kurt wrote. And in a couple of great other books, there's a book called Conversations with with Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, and he had a compendium of interviews, and I leaned heavily on them. But I had to write, I had to use 65% of it had to be Kurt's words, which is why my publisher feels justified in saying it's by Suzanne McConnell and Kurt Vonnegut. Um, because it it really is mostly his words, but of course I organized it all and so on. So um, it was a funny reading experience because I wasn't reading the books as novels. I was reading them as where are examples, what can I use? So um, yeah. So that's how it, how it came
1: about. Awesome. Tell me about the title. Where does the title come from?
0: The title comes from, I had another title. um, So Really, my publisher Dan Simon should have credit for this title. Um, my title was mundane; it was it was called "Vonnegut's Pearls," like pearls of wisdom. Um, but it's and that, at that point, I was going to say by Suzanne McConnell, so it, was, it would have been a whole different thing. Um, and the marketing people didn't think it was very zippy, which it is not nearly as zippy as pity of the reader, but I really uh, rebelled when he first, cause I had been living with my title a long time. So, and we had talked about this because it comes from, uh, I don't know what version of my book you read, the hard cover or the paperback. The Kindle. Oh, Kindle. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, cause you miss, you miss a few things during Kindle, um, which I'll tell you about, but uh, how to write with style. Is that in the in the book?
1: I I don't think how to write with style is in there. Is that a? It's like an essay.
0: It's an essay by um, by Vonnegut that was in the New York Times. Um, it was part of a international paper company's advertising, and they had various how to write speeches, how to write, blah, blah, blah. And I spotted it in the newspaper. I was teaching at Hunter, he cut it out of the newspaper and I used it in every class. It's, it's two pages. It's, I think it's got, it's got eight pieces of
1: advice. Yeah. This was not reproduced in the Kindle. Oh, that is amazing. Really? Yeah. There were, I remember in reading the book that you had some of the numbers, some of the n- numbered instructions, but I didn't I don't remember seeing the Kurtz essay or that that list all consolidated into. Wow. The
0: book. Okay. You, I better send you another book. Okay. So, one of his his well, his first piece of advice is the way the whole first part of my book is structured, which is find a subject you care about and which you and your heart feel others should care about. That's his first piece of advice in this essay, and the seventh piece of advice is pity the reader readers he has, but we decided reader is more, you know, it's more directly to, the, to a person who wants to buy a book. And do you want me to go on about that?
1: Yeah, please do. I'm just okay. checking the Kindle as we talk and making sure I didn't miss it. But yeah, I see all the chapters and I don't see that as a okay. an appendix or anything.
0: It is the, uh, if I hold up the book, it's at the, in the paperback, it's the first couple pages. In the hardback, it's the, uh, it's the interface. It's the uh, inside cover. Um, so in a way, it kind of gives away the structure of my book by having it there so you don't have that, which is kind of nice. But So pity the reader means, I'll read it, they have to identify thousands of little marks on paper and make sense of them immediately. They have to read an art so difficult that most people don't really master it even after having studied it all through grade school and high school, 12 long years. So this discussion must finally acknowledge that our stylistic options as writers are neither numerous nor glamorous since our readers are bound to be such imperfect artists. Our audience requires us to be sympathetic and patient teachers ever willing to simplify and clarify. Whereas we would rather soar high above the crowd singing like nightingales. This is the bad news. The good news is that we Americans are governed under a unique constitution, which allows us to write whatever we please without fear of punishment. So the most meaningful aspect of our styles, which is what we choose to write about, is utterly unlimited. Although there's some stuff going on about that right now that's pretty scary.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you for, for sharing that. Um, let me ask you, how is your life different because you wrote the book or how did the act of writing the book change you?
0: Um, in several ways. Um, one was that the act of doing it was so absorbing. It was, it was wonderfully absorbing and, and wasn't about me precisely. And um, at the very beginning, I wondered what voice is this I'm using? Where is this voice coming from? It's not my fictional voice. And I haven't written, I've written nonfiction, but it wasn't quite that voice either. And then I realized it's my teaching voice. And that's why it's so easy because I'm trying to teach something I'm not self-conscious and I've got this marvelous writer and person who's funny to base, who's funny and serious to base things on. So that was one thing that was interesting because it was, it was just so much easier discovering that, having that voice. And then um, there were certain piece of, pieces of advice uh, originally, this book, I had, I had it divided into sections. My publisher didn't like the sections. He wanted it to be more narrative. I wanted the sections because I thought in terms of teaching, it would be easier. Um, like the section in which I really talk about uh, particular aspects of writing, I called Nuts and Bolts. So if you if you didn't care about that, you could skip that whole section and you would you would be alerted as to what it was. You know. Um, anyhow, um, some of the nuts and bolts about writing really stuck with me and they helped me afterwards as principles that I somehow felt like I missed um, what one was. It's not something I missed, but I just heard it more that if you're a novelist you have to remind the reader. And it's a it's a kind of it's not an intuitive thing. It's one of those things you have to do, you know, maybe in a third or fourth draft when you're going what's, you know, but it's very very important because otherwise the the reader loses track of what the issues are. Yeah. And it's really easy as the writer since you know what they are to forget To pity the reader right and let the reader know so that was interesting and the other thing he said i found really interesting uh um, not just as a writer but as a person which was he said somewhere i don't know if i can remember this quote exactly but if if something happens to a character and no one responds it's as if, fictionally speaking, nothing has happened to the character. And I thought about it in terms of, in terms of people. I, like recently, I read a lot of Chekhov, partly because of this book. Um, and there are two or three stories of Chekhov in which somebody is telling somebody else something important to them and nobody listens. And the story doesn't end until finally in one story, the guy tells, talks to his horse and, that, and that's, so it's the same thing in life. Like if somebody doesn't respond to you, it's why children need reinforcement. People need, people need acknowledgement all the time because, yeah. you know, otherwise you feel like you're blowing in the wind. We're, we're communal, we're, you know. So that really stuck with me because um, when I went back and looked at my novel after Pity the Reader, I saw a place where I really missed the mark in that way, and I revised it. Wow. So that was interesting. Okay.
1: Well, well, good for you. Good
0: for you. you, you I have one out. more thing to say though. Okay. <laughs> about the result. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, just that people people email me like you. Uh, um, people from all kinds of, you know, I've had a rabbi a a. a A bookstore guy, um, English teachers, but but all kinds of people who, uh, you know, write to me and say how it moved them or touched them or how valuable it was to them. I mean, I just think. I just think that I'm that I was fortunate enough to to be able to do this project in which. My own teaching could could come to bear and and the the kinds of issues that Kurt talks about, which are so important and it's just incredible that i you know that I was able to do that yeah,
1: yeah. what a what a privilege yeah that's really, really a wonderful. privilege well then and i I took away so much as well from just having read and to me, one of the big takeaways was the kind of person I want to be and just seeing Kurt as someone who was resilient and he was generous. And as you said, I think he was funny. You know, there was just so much beyond even the advice and instruction about writing, um, that I thought that I thought was really wonderful. And, uh, and I thought it was really interesting too, that Kurt would, you know, live a life of writing and teach about it very generously But somewhere in the book, he and I realize this is a soundbite now with me repeating it, but he gave this instruction to someone. Right. And so I'd love to hear you comment on this against that, you know, with that context of devoting his life to writing and teaching so much writing. But yet he said to someone, don't be a writer if you possibly can't. (laughs) What did he mean by that? Why would he say that?
0: Because there's there are another places where uh, where he talks about patience Mm -hmm. Um, and complains about sitting there. Um, And he, and I have an anecdote that he told about Vance Borgeli, another teacher who Vance once told him that he imagined inventing this kind of, um, this kind of uh, like a, like a wall typewriter that you could throw things at to type something that's physical because sitting is hard. And now we know that sitting is actually bad for us. And, and, and Kurt, sat hunched over his typewriter i mean he really was not ergonomically correct whatsoever you know and um i i think i think it was such hard work and and separated him from like his children they didn't know what he was doing he they're out playing and he's telling them to shut up be quiet let me work and he's trying to write to make a living, he's trying to write to say things that are important. Um, I mean, but that's true of most fathers. I mean, my father went off to work; I didn't know what he was doing. No, yeah. you know, but I I think that um, it's burdensome if you. I mean, what just popped in my mind was uh, somebody in my own peer writing group who said to me, after after years of being together in the group and my sharing chapters of my novel. Finally, in chapter, I don't know what it is 35 or something. Should oh, now I know what you're doing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. Because,
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah. and he also, he, Kurt also gives the advice somewhere, I think, in that same chapter like maybe if you don't write all the time, I mean, he wrote all the time, relentlessly. Um, you know, that's 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 hard on you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and you break that down, I think, really well in a chapter just about all of the almost the risks of being a writer, right? The loneliness and the sedentary lifestyle and you know this kind of thing. And and maybe we'll come back to that. And I definitely want to ask about a few other kind of pieces of advice that Kurt gave. But before I do, I do want to ask you about your novel. You mentioned it a couple of times, it's something I'm curious about. Obviously. This work, Pity the Reader, is a work of nonfiction. And Kurt, as you've already said, he wrote primarily fiction, but also wrote some nonfiction. But with your novel, so you said this was something you've worked on for a long time as well. But until now, or soon, you hadn't published it, haven't put it out into the world. But I understand that now you have an agent and that this is something that is going to happen. Is that right? Will you tell me, about, tell me about the novel and tell me about the story behind it?
0: Okay. Okay. Um- I actually did have an agent about 20 years ago. Um, The novel was longer then, and he loved it, and he very faithfully sent it around, and I got, it's too literary, it's not literary enough, but the only consistent thing I got was, it's too slow. So that's where my learning, Pity the Reader, it's like, you know, you're writing for readers. And it was, when it came back, and I had a little bit of time. I thought, yes, it is too slow. It starts too slow. You don't know what the you don't know what the what's at stake exactly at first. So uh, you know, um, I edited and edited. The novel is um, it's called Fence of Earth. It's based on how do I describe it? Um, it's set in 1980 and goes back to the 60s. And it's it's the the protagonist is trying to come to terms with the suicide of her husband in the sixties. so it's also that whole era. um the suicide is a is a drug overdose. Um, uh she has a new life, she's um pregnant. In the novel, and with a second person, so it's also a whole era that she's coming to terms with, and being a hippie, and all this stuff. Um, and there's a whole other childhood layer in there, which is about animals, and um, I don't know, I, I, it's about slaughtering. Um, so there's a there's a whole bunch of stuff going on, and it's set in three days' time, which is actually not realistic, you know that. It really wouldn't happen in three days, but novelistically it works fine. So um, it just took me a long time because I had to learn so much. I didn't know there, I, I, I just wasn't experienced enough as a writer. And so part of my cautionary chapter about, you know, some sometimes what you care about so much, which is the first piece of advice, Also gives you lots of problems because you can't separate the subject you're caring about from the craft things that you need to learn. It makes it harder.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in that that component of that advice about write about something you care about that you think others should as well. You know, that's
0: right. That's a really different. Yeah, that's really different. That you think others should as well.
1: Yeah. Wow. So. Well, congratulations on, I mean, I know that many artists stay with a single work for decades and they might have a hobby or another art form that they try or other projects. But um, I heard somebody once describe someone who's a writer as someone kind of along the lines of maybe what Kurt was alluding to, but someone who can't not write. Yeah. Just part of who they are. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. And so you know, that persistence, that combination of persistence or commitment or, or whatever, just expression. Um, I really, I really honor that because I think that, um, you know, what's that saying about the world needs, you know, more people who've come alive, you know, kind of thing. And if we're sharing our gift, if we're sharing our art with the world. I think, I think it's a really beautiful thing. So good for you. Anything else that you want to share about that, about your novel or the journey thus far?
0: I I think I think part of the instruction for me but it's but I don't know what advice comes out of this but just boy things have their own time and you can't I mean at this at this distance which is a great distance I see that um I couldn't push the river, it just had its own time. And I don't know what will happen with this novel now, but now, by now it's like an historical novel. When I started it, it was not historical. Uh-huh. <laughs> but maybe, uh, I hope this is true Where some wood, I'll knock on it, um, maybe now is the time that the novel itself needed to be out. I mean I'm quite old, and this is the first time I'm getting attention and if, maybe if I'd gotten attention earlier, it would have gone to my head, or my life would have been different i I don't know all i all I know is I have a some something something about doing having having that what felt like the fairy Godmother come down and tap me on the head to do the Vonnegut book really made me feel very spiritual about it. That, that I could, on the top level, I may rat and rave and blah, 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 But at the, at the, no matter how many times you say it's the process, that's not what you want to hear when you, when you want your story or your whatever published, you want to, everybody wants immediately what they think they want.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Especially in our culture. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and probably more and more each day. Yeah. But- and at the same time, this idea, this is one thing that I definitely want to explore with you is the ideas of success and failure as a creative or as a writer and how Kurt viewed that. And maybe specifically, or as an entry point, the thing he said about Van Gogh, right. And about the paintings that he sold 2 paintings, right. Because I know that some of this is on the, the scale we're considering. Are we talking about during your lifetime? Are we talking about after, which of course, who knows, you yeah. know, but maybe, Maybe you can start with what was it that Kurt said to his students about, about Van Gogh?
0: I don't remember him saying anything about Van Gogh.
1: And I think he said that he sold two paintings yeah. and they were both to his brother. Yeah. And so he said something like, consider yourselves like yeah. Van Gogh, right? Yeah. <laughs> that he was
0: telling <laughs> this to students past, past the time of Iowa, which is sort of interesting because, but when he was at Iowa, You know, everyone, the the perspective I have is like the perspective you have with a childhood friend who you knew when they were children and they were very different than as an adult. He was writing Slaughterhouse-Five when I knew him. He wasn't Kurt Vonnegut yet with capital letters. Mm -hmm. He was just a struggling writer like everybody else. I mean, he had some books out, yeah, but they were not also, you know, well-known. I think Mother Night was published first as a, as a, I think I'm right about this, but it's published first as a paperback and it was like on racks and bus stations. Nobody knew what it was. I mean, it's a fantastic book. And, Mm -hmm. you know, so he was in process. He wasn't, he was just struggling and that's what everyone does. You don't get to be, you know, somebody unless you've gone through getting there
1: yeah and I was really interested in in what you included in the book about um, I think Kurt had said something about every i don't know if it was every child or every son attempts to fulfill his mother's oh, yeah. impossible dreams yes. <laughs> and I think he did that
0: yes, he did that, and I have a footnote I had to put it in a footnote because it didn't quite fit, but my footnote is a quote from Jung and it's um and i'm not going to be able to quote it exactly off the cuff like this, but it's something like whatever is not brought to consciousness will appear magically in your life as fate. Yeah. And I, I believe that. If, you're, if you haven't worked out issues, they keep coming up for you to work out. And, in, and what I talk about in the book, I mean you, you've just finished, so you know, um, you know, Kurt finishes Slaughterhouse-Five, okay. Dresden's taken care of. Then it finishes, then other things pop up his mother's death, um, and he keeps working through that. So it's just endless mining going on, you know? And I think that although he's conscious about, about he says, uh, he talks about his mother, um, it really was amazing to look at how he did fulfill her dreams, you know?
1: It's, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Will you tell me, what what did Kurt believe was the role of talent in a writer's success?
0: I have a chapter on that. Yeah. So that chapter opens with quotes from him, I think from a Paris interview review, in which he he talks about how people have different talents. Um, He was very bad at a lot of things he tried to do. He was a terrible salesman. He tried to You know, um, he would be a horrible mechanic. So he he tries to put talent in perspective. Everyone has talents. You have to have some talent. You can't. It would be ridiculous. And it's it's itself. What's the word? Um, You know, people who aren't talented in a certain thing, they don't continue doing it because it doesn't feel good. Yeah. You know, if you started out and you couldn't write a word and you kept sending things to. Some public, I mean, it just doesn't feel good to be rejected all the time. So I think you learn that pretty early. You learn in school where your talents more or less lie, don't you think?
1: I think by and large, yeah, school is a, a clearing for that.
0: Yeah. Um, not always because there's a lot of talent outside of school, uh, t- things that require talent outside of what you might learn in school. But yeah. So there's that. But he, But talent is not what wins out. There are lots of talented people. Um, persistence, patience, and a kind of stubborn hopefulness serves you much better as a writer and as, as any kind of artist, I think. Yeah. And even as a person, like whatever, whatever your dream is.
1: you know. Well, I love the description that he gives on that. I, if I'm remembering correctly, he talked about writing is like filling a blimp with a bicycle. <laughs> that anyone can do it. It just takes patience and perseverance. So there's this one aspect where, yeah, almost anyone can do this, but talent absolutely has, it factors in no, no question. Yeah. And, and I was really um, I was also struck by something that that you included in the book that seemed to really blow Kurt's mind. And I think it was this comment his sister made about talent that just because you have a talent, just because one has a talent obligates them in yeah. no way, at least this was her view. It doesn't obligate them to use that talent, yeah. but I'm not sure that Kurt agreed with that. How did he see it, and how how do you see that?
0: Well, he he says, and he says this in several different places where I read. So he, it made a big impression on him, as so he was shocked and kind of. I think he was kind of like, "What do you mean? Uh, how could you? How could you say that, Alice? I can hear him, you know." And and she just said what you just said, like, well, yeah, I'm talented, but I don't have to. I think that he really did feel an obligation for that talent. Maybe that's a combination of, yes, he's got to fulfill his mother's dream because his mother was trying to write. Maybe it's because he really had a subject that he thought others should know about that they didn't know about. But he was writing before he went to Dresden. And this is something I didn't actually know as much. Uh, and I think it's something people assume who learned something about him. But until I wrote Pity the Reader and learned a lot more about his background, I didn't know that, for example, he took a typewriter with him to boot camp. I mean, what he was going to do with that typewriter, only a young person who's pretty naive would have. <laughs> Yeah. I would imagine that. Of course, they took the typewriter away from me. He's not going to take it to the Battle of the Bulge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think it's hilarious. I think it's so sweet. And, you know, he found out in high school and in college that no, his talent did not lie in chemistry like his brother. He was busy over there writing for the um, Cornell newspaper. So, you know, he was... He was, he was going to what he liked, and he was he was always funny. He says that when he was a kid, you know, he he learned that he could make people laugh, and that gave him attention. So he kept it up all his life. Yeah, and I lost track of what your first question was.
1: Yeah, it was about this with talent and whether or not you know we have an obligation to do something with it, and and I think it's interesting. You know, we all have our own beliefs and worldviews for sure. But, um, and of course you don't touch on this a lot or maybe deeply, but the fact, but you do touch on the fact that Kurt was an atheist. So if there is this obligation to do something with our talent for him, it wasn't coming from a higher power or from one's creator or this kind of thing, probably. But how do you think that Kurt's worldview as it relates to, you know there being no god uh influenced you know him as a as a human and as a as a writer
0: well i think it's complicated because um yeah he was an atheist but he, there's a lot of christian references you know at the time he grew up even at the time i grew up i grew up going to a baptist church i grew up learning a lot of Bible, memorized lots of Bible verses. And I was very surprised when I wrote my own novel that they poured out. Hmm. So he grew up in a very Christian society that had a common denominator of the Bible and verses. And he uses it, you know, he, so he may be an atheist but he was inculcated with those values. and one of the one of the Christian things I remember learning is, you know, uh, don't what what's the line? Don't don't bury your talents. Let your let your um, I can't think. There's a Christ says something along this line, like, uh, you know, go forth and and use your talents there is a there is a line and i just can't think of it right now all my bible just went out of my mind um so i i think that i think that's part of the answer for him that he that he uh did feel that way also i think it's different for a man than a woman his sister he talks about his sister not being able to do any wrong in his father's eyes Mm. And that he thought that was detrimental to her in a way because everything she did, his father thought was wonderful. Maybe Kurt had to earn it more. Maybe he, I, I don't know that, but uh, I know that he makes a point that, that, um, that she, on the other hand, um, everything was valued and maybe everything then becomes the same. I don't know. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Thank I you. feel like I feel like I'm sort of like yeah you should use
1: them. Yeah. Yeah, well I certainly think so. <laughs> I mean I Do you? Yeah, yeah, I mean I mean I think it's just my my own view but I think that you know there is this this kind of perfection to the universe where you know each of us has certain strengths or certain gifts and when when and they're not all the same. And many of them are, you know, complimentary. And when we, we share, it can be a source of joy in and of itself, just for that expression. And then it can be a gift to those who receive it as well. So, I don't know that there's a moral imperative necessarily, but I, I do suspect there is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for exploring that with me. Um, just a couple more questions about Vonnegut's advice or instruction uh, regarding writing here. One is, this one's very practical and you put this toward the, toward the end of the book, which I appreciate that you didn't leave it out, which is about making a living, right? Because we can look at the Kurt who is famous, who is successful and, and think, oh yeah, you know, like that's, that's it. That's what I want, or just see that that's possible. But then we're reminded that's like a single digit (laughs) probably of all writers who achieve that kind of success. But what was it that Kurt, said about making a living and balancing that with you know one's craft or one's art.
0: He was very concerned about that for us and um later in an essay he sort of disparaged himself so, uh, said students didn't really didn't want to hear about this but I I don't think he was correct. I so what he did at Iowa you know we were in our university bubble and in our in a writer's university bubble meaning we we were given the gift of time that's what getting an mfa was giving you it wasn't a gift I, I paid for it it was expensive at the time now it can be a gift because you can you can get scholarships there but not not for me um, but um uh, I lost track.
1: So we're talking about making a living, making with, a living. Okay. balancing that with right. craft. Okay. And Kurt had a job at GE, right? So he had a full time thing that ultimately he left, but it wasn't. But it was a very calculated, yeah. departure, right? It
0: was. It was calculated, and it didn't. I mean, one of the things that I really thought about this and try to make a point out in the book was calculated because he could earn a living writing short stories. But he actually couldn't, he actually couldn't. He didn't entirely make a living writing short stories. He was supplementing it with doing things, you know, he taught at a at a school on Cape Cod. He had this um, car dealership, which which he was terrible at and and, and didn't work. He kept he kept having to make a living other ways. So I, I, think, uh, I think that there's a lot of complaint among all writers and all artists about having to make a living while you're, while you're trying to do your work. But two things, one particular occurred. he did his best work, he says, I have the quote in the book, when he was struggling the most. Mm -hmm. on Cape Cod. He wrote Cat's Cradle. He wrote Mother Night. He wrote God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater. All the books leading up to all of his first five books. Plus, all that time he was struggling to write Slaughterhouse-Five. His best work, in spite of writing tons of short stories, which is why he was supporting himself, in tons of raising all the children they had, he... he was doing his best work. He's young and he's he's got his war experiences on his mind. He's trying to come to terms with all kinds of stuff and it keeps leaking out in these other novels. So while you complain about your day job, uh, it provides a lot. It provides structure. It's hard to write all day long. Nobody writes all day long. You can't do it. So and I'm thinking about my husband who's a visual artist and um he tells a story when when he was young he was a roofer and he tells a story a wonderful story that about something that happened during work that that formed some of his some of his work which was that a a, a cement loads and loads of cement truck after truck of cement was they were doing a pour
1: mm-hmm.
0: of this cement was supposed to come out smooth but it broke through it was, on a, it was on a slope it broke through and this cement poured through the um you know through the um, barrier and and kept on going and that that shift of well actually it's in the book there's a piece of his work in the book i don't know if i say my husband it's 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 called the melt piece and it's a it's a block and Part of it's pouring out. I think I have it in the chapter of um, what makes great art because Kurt says it's about having a sense of death amongst life. And that transformative thing of one shape into another was what impacted my husband. So I think work, and Kurt would say this in class a lot. He would say, people spend a lot of time at work. Lots of stuff goes on at work. Write about work.
1: Yeah. And,
0: uh, you know, the first story I wrote was about
1: work. Yeah, I love that. And how fitting, you know, that there's someone who is so prolific would recognize that something so mundane is our yeah. day workplace, the thing that we might have a dream of one day escaping is actually right. the very substance of. Uh, yeah, Turtle. Yeah. I want to
0: say one other thing that I also say in the book. He was so concerned about us leaving there with our pie in the sky dreams of writing um, that at the end of the first year, he put together, along with Richard Yates, like an afternoon seminar for us to talk about how we could earn a living. Mm -hmm. And he kind of was very like, do whatever you can do. You can do advertising. And that was quite a piece of advice at the time because we were all anti you know, the industrial military complex and the advertising industry, you know, at that time, if you had a label on your clothes, you would have destroyed it. I mean, nobody, this was the sixties. We were like, <laughs> you know, yeah, we were not doing that kind of social media. I mean, all of it that's going on now would have been horrifying to us at the time. So he was telling us do it. And he also has a, there's a quote in the book about, That kind of hack writing, because there was a whole term at the time we're coming out of Hemingway and so on um, about hack writing. Um, Not so you don't hear that so much anymore, but it was separating like people who were really earnest and really true writers from people who were, you know, doing what he was doing, which is writing for the commercial magazines. And he said, it doesn't ruin it doesn't ruin you as a writer to do that. In fact, you can learn something from it. You learn how to make a plot. So
1: I, I love that. And and you, yeah, I love too that he was concerned for you personally. Yes. You, and, and the other students. Yes. The reality of, you know, being an artist in a commercial world. Yeah. It's, it's not an easy thing.
0: Yeah. And I've had many students. I had a student once come to me. I was teaching at Pratt Institute, which is, you know, about artists. And she came to me one day and she said, "Do you realize that everyone here thinks that they're going to go out and become a famous you know she had just kind of realized it, and she realized that everybody else was thinking that and it yes they do i've had I've had to tell students inform students, no, you're not going to be a writer all by itself you're going to have to have a day job because you know, those they don't know those percentages. Just like nobody thinks about that with all kinds of stuff. Maybe they do more now. There's I don't know. Maybe people are more realistic now.
1: Yeah, kids and young people today are pretty savvy. I'm learning that.
0: Yeah, I think they are. <laughs> I think they're much savvier than, yeah, than we were.
1: For sure. Well, talking about some of the practicalities of living a creative life, one of them is having a family. And Kurt had many kids, he's married a couple of times. What uh what did you learn from Kurt from Kurt's life as it relates to family and and relationships?
0: Um, so, Kurt was a man of his generation, and um, that meant almost my parents' generation, somewhere in between. But it meant that division of labor in a marriage was very clear. The woman raised the children and kept the house and did all the things to support her husband who was doing, earning, earning a living. So that was their case. And um, Jane, his first wife who was at Iowa with him and two of the children, Edie, his oldest daughter and Nanny, his youngest, were there too. Um, Jane did all those things. She supported him she um, she did everything. So that freed him up to, to write. So I'm saying all this because whatever I say is colored by the fact that he wasn't changing the diapers or, you know, hands-on being a dad. He was a dad like my dad, which was went off to work and came home and, you know, wasn't around much. Um, but he also, like, 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 being, um, like being frank and clear about earning a living, he, um, he understood how important it was for an artist to have a sympathetic, supportive partner because you can't do it without that it it's very hard to do it without that without someone who at least understands the singularity of being an artist where you're you know you're not going to the work and coming home you're doing something private and separate and that you don't know whether it's going to reach anybody and when you're young you really you just don't have confidence i mean unless you happen to have confidence but Mostly you don't. So I think he was really aware of and aware of the responsibility towards children because, you know, he was in there making a living for the children. Yeah, If he was by himself, he wouldn't have had to do that. So it's very complicated.
1: Yeah, for sure. And the, and the bit that I got from your book about him, obviously it's not a book about, it's not a biography. It's not a book about his parenting and this kind of thing. But the little bit that I took away, it seems like he was fairly involved in his kids' lives and that they had the sense that he cared about them, that they were oh, yeah. to him.
0: yeah. and he had, I mean, the story we're we're not mentioning here is that he and Jane had three children, and then his sister and her husband died within two or three days of each other. Um, she of cancer and her husband in a horrifying train wreck, um, train fell into the river between New Jersey and New York. Um, and they had four boys and these boys were suddenly orphaned. And um, Jane and Kurt, it, I mean, her, his sister's dying wish was keep the boys together. Mm-hmm. So they adopted the boy, the, they didn't adopt legally, they took them in. And the youngest who was a baby, the a relative on the other side, came up and said, looked at what they were trying to handle and said, Let us take the baby. Um, because this is just too much, too much. So so they, you know, they raised all those children. Then when, when Kurt married Jill Cremens, his second wife, they adopted a child, Lily. So um um, you know, he was he was willing to, to
1: have that other family and, and do that. Yeah. Yeah. And um, on the subject of relationships, so not just with a family, but Kurt also recognized the power and the value of a community, right? Will you talk about how he saw that and, and maybe what you saw and experienced, what is, what is something that maybe artists, creatives, writers don't necessarily think about when it comes to, consciously cultivating or finding a community and, and what is it that might make a difference for them if they did?
0: Um, okay, I'll start with Kurt. So he grew up um, in, a, in a family where they had, um, I didn't know this, of course, until I did research. Um, they had a house on a lake along with aunt and uncles. And so as a kid, you could run from one house to the other. You know, if you didn't like the food at your own house, you could just go to your uncle's just down around the river, I mean, down around the lake. So he had a sense of the security and the variety of a of a group of people. And um, I mean, you've probably had that in parts of your life. I have it in parts of my life. Um, and what I what I was noticing during COVID, for example, was not missing somehow my best friends or my relatives, but missing a sense of the community of humanity, like the person you see all the time in your yoga class. I mean, we have varying degrees of community, but we are more than our tiniest community, you know. And so Kurt was Kurt was. um Always looking for home for that for that kind of community, um, and he there's a letter in which he writes to somebody, his agent, I think, early on, and says, "Is something like Paris going on somewhere like this community of writers in Paris? This rich, you know, a movable feast like Hemingway writes about, and James Baldwin and all all the people that were there, um, and." he finally found that uh i mean that was the kind of thing that happened to him when he got to iowa i mean he told me later that it was certainly as important to him as it was to any of us and i think a large part of that was because at last you know there was this community of people who were doing exactly what he was doing um you know, sometimes they were doing not with the same attitudes or whatever, but at least they're in the trade, you know, so
1: oh.
0: that was really important to him. And I think he saw community, like he has a lot to say about um, marriage. Uh, the single single marriage, not not a generational household or community, how hard that is. And it is hard. It's you know, you want your husband or wife to do and prefer to do exactly what you want to do. Well, if you're in a larger community, yeah. there's going to be someone there who wants to go to that movie. Yep, and it just—it's just, it just is not possible for another person to have all those tastes. So, uh, you know, I've been in, um, you know, at artist colonies or in groups where it's really clear to me that that kind of extended thing right now, my, my stepdaughter has inherited her, her mother's house. And she's told us, I'm thinking, I think of this as the family house and we have built on two studio rooms onto that house. It's a farmhouse in New Jersey. And every time we go out there, we're with my stepdaughter, her husband, a cousin, and even there, there is, It's expansive. It's, it makes you feel secure. It's not just, you know, so Kurt had downsides to say about community too, because it also can squelch you in many ways.
1: Yeah. It was, it was interesting to me to see that this was something that he talked about at all, which is maybe not a surprise, but the one thing that stood out to me was his idea of a school and how a school Will often celebrate its most prominent, you know, adherent or whatever. But they're just the tip of a group of yeah. talented people. That yeah. was a really interesting perspective. Yeah,
0: oh, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. He also, you know, part of this part of his uh, thinking about community came from his um, anthropological background. So mm-hmm. it wasn't just his childhood. It was if you're studying anthropology, you're studying whole cultures, and that. Background really uh, affected him as a as a way of looking at community as a way of looking at everything because he uh, you know there's a he says something about learning that stories can be malleable and so can cultures they you know I I once gave a class the most fun class I ever taught was on cat's cradle because it's a it's a create i don't know if you've ever read that but it's it's a oh it's it's a it's a it's a a, a, an invented uh community with an invented religion and an invented punishments and all the things so i divided my students up and had them each in you know the space of 15 minutes create a religion that had to have certain things you know it had to have Uh, something that you, it had to have rules. It had to have a guru. It had to have a point. So they came up with the wildest thing. Somebody had um, something called Christophmathy. It was crest toothpaste was the point, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera. So he really saw, you know, whole constructs in terms of community. I'm really happy to hear you say To remark on those those chapters, like about working and community, and those chapters, because all of that section I called "How to Live" as a as my working section title. And one day, when I was on Cape Cod, I woke up. I mean, no one asked me to do that, right? I was told to write a book about Kurt's writing advice. Right. So, So, but but what made me do it is because I'd had students who'd quit everything and decided to write and so much larger than just sitting down to write. It's, you know, anyway. So anyway, one of those, one of these nights when, you know, I'm way past my deadline, of course, um, I woke up and and in the morning I said, I'm not gonna do this, this whole section I've come up with. It's too hard and I don't have to do it and I'm gonna throw it out. So for two days I was elated that I was finished. <laughs> <And> then, <laughs> the and then i said i said no people need this they need to know they need to know about earning a living and and they need to think about they need to think in all of these ways their whole life you know so <laughs> yeah.
1: no i'm i'm glad that you included it because i think it gives a reality you know to this and sometimes boldness and You know, leap and the net will appear, or jump off the cliff and build your wing down.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. right. (laughs) Yeah,
1: there is there is an economic reality. Yeah, and and an emotional reality, which is part of what I want to ask about. So, before we wrap up, um, and after the enlightening lightning round here, I want to ask you about depression. I want to ask you about Kurt's view of love. I love that thing about just love whoever's around to be loved. So, I want to ask you about that, and then. And to just conclude with your advice kind of if there's a takeaway or any final advice to anybody listening. So, okay. So that's just a bit of a preview and then anything else you want to say, I know we've already covered so much, but we'll reserve some time for anything else you want to talk about. So, okay. So with that, um, we'll do the enlightening lightning round. So again, a series of questions on a variety of topics. Um, my aim For the most part in this is just to ask the question and stand aside. You're welcome to answer as long as you want, but uh, I'll do my best to just keep us moving through. So here is question number one, please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Life is like a, bouquet. Okay. Question number two. And here I'm borrowing Peter Thiel, the technologist and inv- investor's question. What important truth do very few people agree with you on?
0: I don't know if I can answer that. An important truth that I feel, I can, I can think of a specific thing that's happening, but it's not necessarily a truth. like... Um, I mean, I'll tell you that, but I don't think it answers your question. It, it's, it's, the, it's the problem of censorship versus, um, versus, it's about being politically correct. Hmm. How, how hard that is right now. It's not answering your question at all though. So I, I'm gonna stop even going. Okay,
1: there. no yeah. worries. Okay. We'll keep going. Question number three, if you were required to wear a t-shirt every day for the rest of your life with a slogan on it or a saying or a phrase or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say?
0: <laughs> I can't believe you're asking these questions. They're, <laughs> just they're so hard.
1: One of the things that people get tattooed on themselves. For. I know
0: what they think about them for a few days. <laughs> you're asking me right at the moment. Um, Keep your feet on the ground.
1: Okay. Question number four, what book other than your own, have you gifted or recommended most often?
0: Hmm. Um, That's hard. I mean, I've, I've certainly recommended a lot of Vonnegut books. Um, but I've also I I in my own journey um, read a lot of self help books when I was trying to help myself a lot when I needed it. So there are certain books out of there that I that I used, like Louise Hayes. Everybody's read Louise Hayes.
1: Like you can heal. Oh, Louise, uh, you, Louise Hayes. You can heal your life. Yep.
0: Yeah. Um, the I Ching. You know, I don't know that I. Uh, that I recommend it a lot. That I use it. Um, so there are some funny books like that that are really out of the loop. That if I told a lot of my fiction writer friends, they would go squeamish and not not like you know uh, yeah. because they're too they're too directly self helping. It makes people squeamish to think that they need help or to try to get help.
1: <laughs> yeah, sometimes.
0: And I I kind of got over that because. I needed so much help that I had to, I was very embarrassed by, by trying to get help when I first started trying to get help. Mm. I felt ashamed. Like, you know, you're supposed to already be evolved and you're not supposed to need help. Yeah. So
1: many people feel that way for sure. <clears throat> okay. Um, question number five. So this one's about travel. Um, it assumes you do a lot of travel. I know the pandemic has changed this for many people, but, Um, What's something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable?
0: I take um, watercolors and I always take a notebook. Um, I once wrote a story while I was in Vieques in Puerto Rico based on a guy I saw in a bar. And I started on the beach when my husband went for a walk. I just started writing this story. Um, so I take, I take those
1: things. Awesome. I
0: always take those things. Yeah.
1: Okay. Um, question number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well?
0: Hmm. Um, i have huh one of the things I do to age well is um to keep it's cliche keep engaged but i but i do i i you know i'm very engaged with pity the reader i i have been doing the i i quit teaching but i've been editing with Bellevue Literary Review for almost 20 years. And um, we have lots of friends, lots of social life. Um, And one of the other things is um, this is sort of along the line of being embarrassed, like because it's embarrassing to grow. You need you need more help when you age. And um, you need fixing a lot. So I have body replacement parts, you know, and everyone resists that because it's not fun to have a hip replaced or whatever, but it's, it's it's a really interesting process in terms of getting help, asking for help, asking for what you need, finding what you need. Um, and it doesn't work not to be able to ask for those things and not to recognize that you need help. I mean, I can't do things that I used to do easily. I I also, um, you know, have a certain um, exercise regime I ought to do more of, certain stretches that I do. So, I think I don't know if I answered the question about quitting or starting, um, but. Those are the things I do.
1: Oh, that's great. Thank you. OK, question number seven. What's one thing you wish every American knew?
0: Wow. I wish every American really, really understood the basic idea of democracy. The basic idea of democracy is a kind of Christian idea, do unto others what you would have them do unto you. And I'm very concerned about voting rights right now, terribly concerned. And it is, the the quarrel about it is about not giving everybody um, a voice. Yeah. Let me have more power than you.
1: Yeah, it doesn't seem very American, does it? (laughs) No. I'm with you. Question number eight, what's the most important or useful thing you've learned about making relationships work?
0: Acceptance. Mm -hmm. Acceptance of who that person is. Not that I always do it, of course. I'm only saying what I know works, not that I'm always good at it. Yeah. But um, I did the S training a long time ago. It was, I don't know if you know what that is
1: but when I, when
0: I yes and there was a there was a thing they put you through in that uh, um, I think this wasn't even in the training per se it was in some seminar but you sat with a person with a stranger and they made you sit there for I don't know how long a long time everything was always a long time and observe everything about the person that you liked and everything that you disliked and then they put you through a uh, the the whole process of everything you disliked, and asking you, can you accept this person in spite of your judgment about what you dislike? And then you would go, yeah, I, I can. Most, I mean, I, I'm assuming I, I did. I, that was the point of it. So when you got through, you really did accept that. You really went through this thing of accepting each thing the tiny, you know, the tiniest things people don't like, you know, I remember somebody saying to me that my feet were too small. (laughs) What? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Whatever, you know? Um, So we all are running around with these judgments all the time. But as someone, I just read a wonderful piece in the New York times about forgiveness. And it was, he was making the point that we also forgive everybody all the time because we have all these little judgments and then we forgive them all the time about about their feet being too small or their ears being too lobes or too long or, or their, whatever you don't like what they wear, whatever it is. We, we really do, uh, forgive everybody that our little judgments pretty continually. Mm -hmm. So we need to give ourselves pats on the back for that. But, um, that process of acceptance, I think is really the, the, the most important thing.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Question number nine, almost at the end here. And aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money?
0: About money <laughs> that you need it. I think You may not know that, but <laughs> I hope you do. Um, Yeah, so I'm not good with, I'm not very good with money. Um, And when I was, when I quit teaching full time, you know, I was bouncing checks every other minute, um, sort of not paying attention to it. And um, I think, I think, I think my Christian upbringing gave me a negative idea about money. I, uh, which which Louise Hay actually helped me with, because she talks about embracing money because money is money is important, money can bestow things money can give things you you found that out it's she talks about it as um part of plenty, you know part of um part of the transaction. Of of give and take among things, it's a it's a method, and um, we know in this country what it, what it's doing for wealth to be inequitable as it is, um, and how important it is for it to be more equitable. So I I think even as I'm talking, I realize that I don't value it enough. Like. My husband will say to me, you know, you don't even know what you're getting with your loyalty. I mean, I, I don't pay enough attention to it. Mm-hmm. I still have this. It's, something's something's a little wrong. Yeah. And and I think it's a really stupid attitude because um, I do. I do find myself going to the business section of the Times and reading it because because things are happening there. It will say something's, you know, something happened and it matters. You, it's about power and, and, you know, what Midas puts his fingers on will turn into something. You can't, you, I mean, it's, it's sort of the same thing as like learning with the civil rights movement. Without Lyndon Johnson being in power, and without his assistance the um the what martin luther king dr martin luther king and all the other leaders who were fighting so hard would not have easily won the first voting rights act because you need someone in power that's why we need politicians in power because they have the power yeah so money is money is power like that and why don't I, why don't I learn that more? I'm much more accepting of money and and of the whole thing, but I'm not as responsible as I should be about it.
1: See previous answer about acceptance.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yes. Yes. Oh, good. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Very good. I appreciate that.
1: No, thank you. Okay. And um, final thing here in the enlightening round is um, speaking of money as a effort to express my gratitude to you for sharing what you've learned and what you've experienced with me and with everyone listening. I've gone to a a micro-lending site named Kiva.org that makes micro-loans to entrepreneurs around the world. And uh, I have made a micro-loan to uh, a woman named Elizaveta who's in Moldova. And she'll use this money to buy a sprinkler and to pay for her tractor repairs so that she can perform agricultural work. And then the beautiful thing about this is I won't receive any, re I won't receive the interest on this. That will fund the lender there. So hopefully this will create a virtuous cycle where Elizaveta's life will be blessed. The people that she serves will be blessed and they'll be able to contribute to more entrepreneurs in Moldova and increase the quality of life for many people. So thank you for giving me a reason to, to do that. You're welcome. <laughs> That's fun. Okay. Well, cool. Well, I know we're, we've, we've talked for quite a long time and we've covered so much. And, uh, just a moment ago, I told you that I was interested to, to understand, um, what Kurt's view was or what your view is uh, about depression and the creative uh, person. I'm interested to know about love, the role that that might play, um, and then anything else that you, that you want to, to talk about and final thoughts for, for anybody listening? So I know that's a lot. We can cover as much or as little of that as you want, but where, where would you like to take the conversation?
0: I'll start with love. Um, he, I think what he says about love that I quote in the book is profound, that he makes a point about respect versus love. Love is such a weird term, uh, it's it's such a big noun for all kinds of ways that people feel, including if you love me, why are you doing that? <laughs> and that kind of, that kind of stuff, or I love you so much. I'm going to kill you because I can't stand it that you're with somebody. I mean, et cetera, et cetera. So when he talks about respect, um, respect is a kind of love and it's, it's not a possessive love. The word respect is not about possessing somebody. Um, it's about giving them space, about honoring that person. Um, I, I think in there somewhere is listening, um, allowing that person to be who they are, what we talked about before, acceptance. And he, he, there is a passage in my, I think it's the chapter, Love, Marriage and the Baby Carriage, uh, about that, but he does something else very often. He, he, um, he revised, he liked to revise many stories. He talks about stories as a revisable thing. So um, he, he there are several stories that are in the culture that he revises so that there is more respect in the story. And I, I, I think, I think that value is just, I, 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 the ship, when I read that, that those passages about respect, I was really moved by that. I really thought it was a key to, um, it's actually a key to love, real love. Yeah. Because real love has to do with respect.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And if I may read, um, one of the things I highlighted, cause this, this struck me as well where Kurt's words are one of the many unnecessary American catastrophes going on right now is all the people who are getting divorced because they don't love each other anymore. That is like trading in a car when the ashtrays are full, when you don't respect your mate anymore, that's when the transmission is shot and there's a crack in the engine block. Yeah. A great description. Of yeah. That. Yeah. And then, and then beyond even the, the relationship, and, the, and obviously this is a very important you know, relationship for so many of us, the, the, the spouse or the marital partner. But even beyond that, I love that you also include this thing that Vonnegut says through his character constant in the Sirens of Titan, a purpose of human life is to love whoever is around to be loved. Like what a great, what a great view.
0: Yeah. It's like the song, love the one you're with. <laughs> um, it's a little different than that, but. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. That's a great quote. I love that. I love
1: that quote. Yeah. I remember I did a program a few years ago and it was, it was actually a Tony Robbins program, but there was a gentleman Mm -hmm. on stage, Joseph McClendon, the third, and he told a bit of his, his life story. And and I got the sense that this was so true, you know, just from seeing him or hearing his words. And he said, you know, I made the decision. I think he called it the 50 foot rule. He said, if somebody comes within 50 feet of me, I'm just going to love them. That's really cool.
0: Yeah. There's a quote by Abraham Lincoln about um, it's not quite about love, but it's about, it's something like people I, I've noticed that people are just about as happy as they decide to be. Yeah. Which is somewhere along the same, something along the same line.
1: Yeah. It's a decision. It's
0: a decision. Yeah.
1: I think that's really beautiful. Yeah.
0: And you talked about depression. So Kurt had was visited by depression a lot, um, and he. T- I mean, there are several quotes in my book from him about it. Um, one is to his friend uh, Jose Donoso, and, and he talks about writing and writers being depressed. and He says to Donoso, "Maybe it's because they're they're carrying." Uh, because of the smallness of their operation is how he puts it, meaning that as a novelist, you're doing the whole thing yourself. Uh, I mean, there's, there's um, I was just on a panel, I was just on a discussion with, uh, with, about veterans and so on. And in that, they were talking about how war veterans today who are writers hook up with each other. They have community in a way that Bonnegut didn't and a way that writers didn't at the, at the time so um there's that um but there's mechan there's there's um you know depression is a brain disease yeah and he, he talks a it talks a lot about uh mental illness and and um how it's it's a disease you know unfortunately I think that he didn't, at the end of his life, take, take those words to heart, because I think he was quite depressed, and I think he could have used some medication and some help about it himself.
1: Yeah. And at one point, you, you included in this um, where he did actually seek that, well, he shared in the interview that he did take some medication at one point, and that he did seek uh, a psychoanalyst, I believe, at, at one point but it sounds like maybe he didn't keep up with that or toward the end of his life when mm-hmm. it, he could have used it. He, he didn't avail himself of that. Yeah.
0: And also um, there's a PTSD factor for him um, that, you know, he didn't use that term, but if you look at his life uh, um, in terms of being a survivor of of Dresden and the firebombing and other things, even his, wh- why did he live and his sister and his sister's husband die? I mean, just the, that kind of survivor question. Um, and then do I deserve joy and happiness since they didn't have it? You know, it's it, 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 lots of stuff going on there. I think.
1: Yeah. And a mother, right. Who had her own addiction. Yeah. And if I understand she took her own life.
0: She either took her own life or it was an accident, but he chose to talk about it after a while as though she took her own life. So it's not, it's not absolutely known.
1: How do you think that his ability to deal with his depression? I mean, you talked about this early where you said that you could, you knew he was struggling when you were his student and so forth, but um, how do you think that his art allowed him to cope with this or manage or process this in a way that maybe, he wouldn't have been able to without it.
0: You know, I can only make a guess. I'm not, I'm not him, and, and even he could only probably make a guess, but he talks about the fact of working out your own issues. In fact, he has a piece of advice about writing off the, uh, writing indirectly, because he says, no matter what you're writing, your issues will come out, and they will, bigger or smaller. Uh, I think... I think that you know it, if I if I think of my own writing like the weirdest story I've ever written came to me in a dream and I and I didn't even know that I had those issues as deeply as I could and I could not have ever written about them in a realistic way because it it was too much and I think that part of what he does with the science fiction even for him is to get to get to be able to address things in a in a creative manner that 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 comes out in ways that um, that you that you don't understand that you don't know you know that uh, it, because because words are only they're not the thing. They're they're a substitute. Our experience is, you know, in our body, in our spirit. So those manifestations come out in ways that we don't understand. And if we don't have those manifestations, I don't know what happens to us. There's lots of people on the street here that... Are not working something out in another way. I, I I think it's really fundamental. I think that everyone is creative, and and sometimes you cannot articulate things; they're too hard. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for going there. Now that I I look at one of the very last questions, I'm like, what a downer. <laughs> why did I, <laughs> Why did I end with that? But I'll, I'll I'll put the onus on you. What? How do you want to end this? Uh, interview. And is there, and and perhaps it's uh, a piece of advice or encouragement that you would leave people listening with that would help them finish their own creative projects or something more general, just kind of something, final thought, final words.
0: I think I've said it already, but I I think that, um, I think there is a, a, a higher spirit or a lower spirit or a spirit, whatever going on. and. And I think it leads. I think it is creative, and it leads to creativity. And that, you know, Kurt really believed in creativity, and in and in uh, and and he would say, talent or no talent, um, you know, you can play the piano, even if you're not going to be at Carnegie Hall, et cetera, et cetera. So. Um, and also, you know, everything is creative. Business is creative, philanthropy is creative. It takes thought, it takes vision, intuition. All of those, all of those things happen. So trust, trust what comes up for you. Trust your uh, trust your interests. Trust the path that seems to come up.
1: Okay. Wonderful. Well, fantastic. Well, again, um, thank you, Suzanne, so much for sharing so generously of your time, of your wisdom, of your insights. Um, I've really enjoyed, I know I've said this already, but I really enjoyed Pity the Reader. I've loved talking to you, being able to ask a few follow-up questions and things like this. And, and I'm confident that people listening to this will find a lot of value and enjoyment from the work you've done as well. So thank you.
0: Thank you. I told you one time I wanted to interview. I don't know what for, but I love interviewing people. So if you want to be interviewed for some venue, let me
1: know. Okay. That's very generous. <laughs> Thank you. I, I love that. Yeah. I don't spend a lot of time on the other side of the microphone. So that, right. could be, that could be a lot of fun. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Again, my guest today, Suzanne McConnell, her book, Pity the Reader. And will you tell me again the name of your novel?
0: Fence of Earth.
1: Fence. Fence of Earth. Hey, thanks so much for listening to this episode of the School for Good Living podcast. Before you take off, I just want to extend an invitation to you. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life still isn't working for many people. Whether it's here in the developed world where we deal with depression anxiety, loneliness, addiction, divorce, unfulfilling jobs or relationships that don't work, or in the developing world, where so many people still don't have access to basic things like clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or they live in conflict zones, there are a lot of people on this planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, or even if your life is working, but you have the sense that it could work better, consider signing up for the School for Good Living's Transformational Coaching Program. It's something I've designed to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated, or you've gone through a divorce, or you've gotten married, headed into retirement, starting a business, been married for a long time, whatever. No matter where you are in life, this nine-month program will give you the opportunity to go deep in every area of your life, to explore life's big questions, to create answers for yourself, in a community of other growth minded individuals. And it can help you get clarity and be accountable to realize more of your unrealized potential. It can also help you find and maintain motivation. In short, it's designed to help you live with greater health, happiness, and meaning so that you can be, do, have, and give more. Visit goodliving.com to learn more or to sign up today.